Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Uh, well, hello, I'm James Holland, and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I haven't got Al with me at the moment, uh, but I have got Dr. Peter Johnson from the National Army Museum. And Peter, it's kind of rather nice because everyone else is gone. We've got the place to ourselves. It's nice and quiet. They've actually got rid of the shelling and the machine gunning, so we're going to be safe as well. And I'm looking at this extraordinary collection of mostly small arms suspended by wires altogether. I mean, it's like a sort of piece of modern art all in itself but um, some incredible weapons here and, and lots that I recognise but lots that I don't little sort of weird hybrids so I'm looking at sort of various machine guns, submachine guns, rifles pistols, you know right in front of me here is a Sten gun but there's a couple of other sort of Sten gun looking things which aren't quite Sten guns but might be. Yeah. Tell, but tell me all. Sure. Well, so I've, I've never seen them before. So, so this one right in front of you here, this is this is the Owen, which is an Australian. Is this uh, the one with the two grips? This is the one with two grips, and can you see it's painted in uh, in the in the jungle yep. uh, camouflage. Now, when the war began, when the Second World War began, Australia didn't have any kind of indigenous weapons manufacturer that just used British weapons. Yeah. Uh, and so obviously with the with the Japanese advance through the Pacific, they needed to accelerate this. They had some in development, right. but they weren't particularly good. So the first one they bring out was actually the Austin, which is up there. Which do you see how similar it is to the Sten? Yes. It's got it's got the same sort of main body and breech and 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 sort and, of trigger really. And, and the side magazine. Yeah, uh, and, and the actual kind of barrel of it is the same, isn't it? But it's got two grips. It had some some improvements, but also all of the same problems uh, in many ways. <laughs> it was pretty unreliable. It would jam. Uh, it didn't tend to fare particularly well in the jungle. Now, obviously, in the in the jungle, uh, it's all very well and good having having rifles and that sort of thing. But the the longer and the bigger rifles tended to be a bit more unwieldy when you're fighting right. at a much closer quarter. Yes. So you actually have a prioritisation of some of these weapons. So the Thompson, for example, came into its own again, uh, particularly in the jungles of, of of Burma. Sure, but but you just let's just go back. So this is the Austin. You yeah. Say. Okay. Right. So this Austin, but that's also looks to me like it's got an um, an MP40 stock. That's exactly right. Because is that what it is? It's exactly what it is, uh, because they, the Australians looked at it and thought, well, the original Sten didn't like the stock, didn't like the fact it didn't have a proper grip. It was a right. pretty, um, it was a, well, it was it was a very functional and, and mass-produced weapon designed right. for for a period where functional and mass-produced things were very were very much necessary. Uh, and so that's what they brought in. And then actually, it's what then then develops onto the the the, the later on, which has the the, the top-fed machine gun, uh, top-fed uh, yeah, magazine. Yeah, got the magazine coming out the top, which is quite rare actually. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know, because you're not going to see down the sights and all that sort of thing. But th this is actually incredibly robust. It's very popular, and it actually continues to be used by the Australians well into the 1960s. No way. Yeah, so it really does last. Do you see up above it as well? Do you see this particular uh, strange weapon directly yeah. above it there? It looks sort of half Beretta, half something else. That is a that's a silent Sten. So that was <laughs> is it? Okay. Yeah. So, so that is still basically a Sten. That is it's got a wooden butt, got a grip. And, and, and then the whopping great silencer. And the whopping great silencer. Again, the idea about obviously what you see more in the Second World War is the special forces, the incursions, mm -hmm. the commandos, yep. the obviously the SOE as well. Uh, and it's this idea about giving greater firepower, but without necessarily sacrificing positions and things like that, and so maintaining noise. Now, so they build it with a, a silencer, and, and that's this webbing wrapped around it, designed to basically suppress the muzzle flash, right, uh, and prevent that going out. Now, the only problem of that is, as you can see, it's material. 
Uh, <laughs> so it's going to catch fire, right? It's gonna, well, it's only going to burn through right. uh, pretty quickly, uh, which is why actually the, the, the British begin to, to drive forward and develop the, the Delisle carbine, which is that one you can see up there hanging from the top. Do you right. see? Yes, With yes, a really yes, yes, yes. broad barrel. Yeah, I do. Now, it looks almost a bit like a shotgun. Doesn't it? Uh, but actually, or blunderbuss. Or, or a bit of a, yeah, exactly. But, but in I mean, that is a really, really chunky barrel. Yes, but that's because it has the suppressor built into it. Got you. Uh, is it heavy? It is pretty heavy. Um, and I mean, you think most rifles are about eight pounds, something like that. No, this is, be a bit more. This, this is slightly more than that. It's got quite a small magazine as well, but with the suppressor built into it, it means it's far more durable. Um, but those are actually very rare. They were issued to the commandos and other special forces, but there's only about 129 of them that are built wow. uh, and made, uh, and obviously we have one of them. But listen, I just want to go back to Sten, because Sten sure. gets a lot of grief. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the late, great Professor Sir Michael Howard, you know, of the 3rd Battalion, the Colstrian Guards in the Second World War, wrote a lot of the, the um, grand strategy official histories you know absolute legend um in his lifetime he famously wrote a letter to the times complaining about how awful the sten gun was um i mean was it that bad i mean it seemed all right to me i mean you know it's rough and ready and you want rough and ready guns because then you've got more room for for maneuver i mean real precision weapons the problem with real precision weapons is they then jam because there's no slack whatsoever so you what you Losing accuracy, you gain in robustness, and that's the whole point of the P P um, P P S H, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But but also the, the, the Russian submachine gun. I, I mean, don't forget that you know there's that actually. Um, it's rough and ready, but also it can be mass-produced very quickly. Yeah. You know, that's been turned out by... Seven man hours, I mean. Yeah, something like that. You know, it's been basically been turned out anyone that's got a, a, a metal, a, a turning tool. You know, that is effectively the crossbar of a bike. Raleigh make these in their factory. <laughs> is that uh, so? Yeah. That's uh, amazing. You know, it's, it, that's essentially what it is with a firing pin put in it. Um, but but, the, but the, the problem with it is you've got this magazine that comes out the side and it's got two chamber, two parallel chambers that then... then uh, there's a spring that enables them to be fed one at a time, and that just leads to jamming. Is, is that is that the fundamental problem? Yes. It, well, it's one of and the, no safety mechanism. It's one of the problems. It, the later versions have a safety mechanism, right. but it's liable to slip through. It is simply a button that you push through to hold it. Um, I, I mean, if you ever get one and you're ever holding one, well, just, I've got one in my study actually, well, but it's deactivated, well, so I can't really test well, it. The, the, if the bolt's still slides, just. Um, you, you never want to do this too hard with your own possessions, obviously. But just give it a little tap on the table, mm. and often you'll just hear the bolt go. And that was one of the big problems, because when guys used to jump out the back of lorries or they used to go over a big bump in a rutted road... Right. Uh, it would just suddenly go off. It suddenly go off. Uh, and negligent discharges were, were a big problem uh, with, with the Sten. But uh, the later versions, the later marks tended to fix that a little bit. So when do they, when do they fix that? What, what, I mean, what they're, marks? They're pretty much moving progressively through that. You know, right. Three and fours, later, much later in the war. Mm -hmm. um, and by I think mine's a three. Yeah, probably. Um, th th there's more of the three. Th those are the ones that are producing the greater numbers. But what and they have the safety catch. I think yeah. mine's got a safety catch on yeah, the side. that's right. Um, and they've got a slightly more comfortable uh, stock and, and handle and all, right. and all this sort of thing. What you're saying about the, you know, Sir Michael Howard not liking them is, quite, is really interesting. And, and a lot of British units didn't like them. I remember uh, a guy, a gentleman next door in the Royal Hospital said, right, so what we did is we got the Stens, and the first thing we did is we found a convenient ditch, we chucked it away, and we got ourselves a rifle because uh, it was a much better weapon. And yet, interestingly, there are plenty of accounts where you read about the, the British who are going out and they're trying to get their hands on a German MP40 to yep. replace the Sten. They both use 9mm ammunition. Yep. Um, Deliberately so. Yep. But at the same time, the Germans are actually going out and trying to get their hands on Stens. 
Yeah. So I think but there doesn't is... every side have weapons envy? Exactly. Exactly that. Exactly that. Um, you know, very few uh, are able to sort of really maximise, and everyone sort of goes, "Oh, we really want to get, get lay our hands on that bit of kit." Um, I think you know the you look at the same time. There's some very iconic weapons that each side holds on to. You know, the American M1 or something like mm -hmm. that. But then if you think about the M1 carbine in Europe, that is absolutely detested. Because it's, it's perceived that it has no stopping power. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, the Americans using that in, in the island when they're island hopping um, and they're fighting at slightly longer range at the time. Again, there's a real worry that it ha and you, you know you see guys throwing these away and just falling back on a trusty 45 Colt or something right, like that. Right, right, right. In the jungle in Burma, actually, the British are quite quite like using those carbines. Uh, because because the, cause the distances involved are so short. Distances involved are so much shorter. They're so it's much lighter. lighter. They're, they're not as long, so they don't get tangled on branches. Exactly. Um, and so really, the, the, you know, the, the, the way in which the, the different campaigns are fought in different parts of the world has a, has a different need and a different call for these weapons, yeah. let alone some of the specialisms. Uh, you'll see the, uh, the Falsham Yaga uh, yes. light machine gun that's up there as well, which yep. is obviously designed to uh, give them far greater firepower and be far more mobile. Yes. But again, your earlier point about these, not over necessarily over-engineered weapons, but things that are absolutely finely tuned and well done have a huge amount of time and love and, and poured into them and their production in 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 mass war sometimes it's not the the best designed right. weapon that, that, that's going to achieve your victory it's the one you can produce in the most numbers well i've been lucky enough to find most of the um the main german small arms including the mp38 and the mp40 and i've got to say they are really and also the mp28 actually um which was then developed by the navy into the lanchester um they they were amazing. I mean, they were they. You know, I'm I'm no no weapons expert, but you put you know they're light. There's no kick. They're solid. They just feel really really smooth and really well engineered. And it's a really weird thing. I'm I'm very conscious. I'm sounding a tiny bit fetishistic about this at the moment. I don't mean to be, but you know, you picked up the MP40 and fired that, and I thought, wow, okay, I can absolutely get why people kind of you know wax on about this one. On the other hand, it does take you know sixty man hours or whatever. It's incredibly expensive. Even the MP40 compared to uh, is, is much more readily and, and mass produced um, than the MP38. But even so, it's still kind of really, really well engineered. And you can see, if you're British, why you would want one of those. And of course, if you're a soldier, you can give a toss about how many man hours it takes or how much money it costs the, the you know the main you know the national bank or whatever. You can give a toss about that. But, but as historians, you have to kind of take a step back and look at it in its kind of broader thing. And, and there is certainly um, a case, isn't there, for quantity over quality. And there's sometimes there's a time where you can have, you know, you can have your quantity, but the quality's shot. Absolutely. Uh, and then occasionally you hit the absolute sweet spot. Yes. Um, no, I suppose that's what you're trying to do. And that's what it? you're always trying to do. And that's what, that's, in a way, that's a lot what this case is about. This case is about showing the, the huge pace of development in small arms that takes place from yeah, the First it World is, War it is right amazing. up through. And you can see that, you know, when it comes to thinking about, you know, mentioning the sweet spot about weapons that then, that then go on for, and last for a long time, the Bren, I think, is a really good example of that from, from the British, you know, uh, a weapon that just works with British tactic. Yeah. Because um, it works with understanding it's, it's it's robust and it's it's effective similarly the the the, the brownie 30 caliber yeah is exactly I like that, that as well. well that was just absolute you just felt that could have fired all day it, it was absolutely amazing you know it's it's in comparison to the mg42 it's 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 certainly very effective uh it's easy to change you know, change the barrel because it's air cooled as well that makes it more 
adaptable into different combat theatres too, which is which is always useful. You know, if you need to be fighting a desert where you don't have a lot of water, for example, to have a water-cooled barrel, well, then having an air-cooled one is, is, is really good yeah. uh, for that reason. Um, and, and obviously, and, and vice versa. And actually, that's why the, the British, for example, when they go into Korea, actually start using Browning 30 calibers. Right. Uh, because obviously, in, in it's very dry in Korea in the summer, there's not a lot of water. And then right. when it's very cold in the winter, the water would freeze that you had. Sure. So having an air-cooled weapon is, is really useful. Uh, and that's what they do. And actually, a lot of these weapons that are, are pioneered and driven uh, and introduced in the, in the Second World War go on to serve for much longer after it as well. Um, as much as anything, because I think they're produced in such large numbers that there's no need to continue <laughs> to, say, developing anything else um, until until invariably the technology changes. But you know, things like um, the the long range desert group. Uh, machine gun over there that you used to mount on the they had mounted yes. on the front of their yeah, the Lewis gun, isn't it? yeah it's a Lewis gun exactly it's a Lewis gun exactly like this one yep. you know not that radically dissimilar from what guys would have carried in the first world war yeah which indeed all put on their sop with whatever exactly that um, but it's one fast thing okay there's so much debate it gets so heated about the German MG42 and MG34 I mean you know, I mean, you can read in books where it says, you know, the, surely the preeminent small arms of, of the Second World War and all the rest of it. And I remember saying this to um, Lieutenant Colonel John Starling at Shrivenham, um, who had the small arms unit there, and, and him just turning on me and deconstructing that argument just like that and pointing out that the rate of fire, you know, was great in initial engagement, but came with all sorts of problems of overheating and all the rest of it. But then there are other arguments that are saying, no, it's the right weapon for the construct, the tactical construct of the group of the squad, the um, section, the 10-man infantry section in, in a German um, infantry unit. So w where do you sit on all this? You know, Bren versus MG42. Oh, that it's is... such a biggie. And I know there's no answer, there's no specific answer, but... but you know, come on. I mean, that, that, did, that did overheat super quickly, didn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And I think the... To move outside the Second World War slightly, shall we say? I think what you what, you talk about the M3 now, yeah, haven't you? Yeah. Version of it. But but what, what you're looking at, <clears throat> I think, in in terms of what the British move on to in the aftermath of this, is that they they recognise the value of having a belt-fed, yep, machine gun, something that can lay down a lot of fire very quickly, yeah, but also having something you can change the barrel on really fast, yeah, and that's where the GPMG comes in, yes, uh, which is. You know, it's been around for nearly fifty years. But what's the rate of fire on that? Like seven hundred, six hundred? Yeah, it's a bit. It's a bit less than that. You know, so you're not fourteen hundred. Yeah, you're, you're you're not. You know, no one's nicknaming that Hitler's buzzsaw or anything like that. No. But at the same time, it's about that functional way to fire. You know, putting down all that firepower is one thing, but if it's not effective, then it doesn't really. It's not but, really. But what I don't, what I've never quite got my my head around is what is it about the construct of the German section stroke squad stroke grouper, as they called it, compared to a British 10-man section. What, what is it that's different about the way the German section is, is constructed that means the MG42 is absolutely brilliant for it, whereas a Bren wouldn't be? I think perhaps it's a question of tactics and doctrine and culture. In, yep. in those units, you know, the we've seen a lot of change in the historiography of the British Army. Shall we? You know, David yep. French, uh, 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 John Buckley have written great books on that. Jonathan Fennell, most recently of yep. all, you know, suddenly the, the the idea that the British Army was not very good in the in the Second World War and really sort of just hang on in there, and, and, and that's now passed. And we've yep. had a much more honest appraisal about what is quite an effective fighting machine. Yeah, but throughout that, there's still this very much mentality of you know, let the metal do the work. Uh, a metal rather than men, and I think perhaps in the, in still not flesh. Yeah, still not flesh. And I think perhaps in in more in the in the in the German culture and the way that the Germans are are, are made up, 
that that's not necessary as apparent. It became, it, I think, it becomes more pressing towards the end of the Second World War, in particular, when yeah. when manpower is is a massive issue. But I think that ability of having laying down firepower, but then moving and attacking and hit, getting onto objective very quickly and taking it is what makes the the MG42 so suited uh, to them a, 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 as a small unit. And you know. Eh, Fortunately, I've never had to be in that situation myself, where, where my <laughs> life has, has depended on it. So yeah. this is very, this is a, a cold civilian analysis of it, if you will. Yeah. But I think if I was to r rely on something, if I was defending, I'd probably want an MG42. But if I was attacking, I'd maybe like the greater mobility of a Bren. Perfect answer. And on that note, cheerio for the moment. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.